The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Hello and welcome to Top of the Pods, another episode in which we look back at the highlights from the 200 interviews that we've done over the past two years on the Art Newspaper Podcast. This week we're looking at two conversations about Andy Warhol. The huge Warhol retrospective, From A to B and Back Again, which began at the Whitney Museum of American Art in New York last November, is now at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art and later travels to the Art Institute of Chicago. Across two podcasts last year, we looked in detail at the show itself and at Warhol's legacy. A bit later, you'll hear from Jeremy Della, the British artist who, as a young man, spent a few weeks at Warhol's legendary studio, The Factory, in New York. But first, here's an interview from October last year with Donna DeSalvo, the curator of the touring retrospective. Donna was talking to our senior editor in New York, Nancy Kenny. In a catalogue essay for the exhibition, you write that you met with Warhol in the 80s when you were a curator at the Dia Art Foundation. I'd love to hear about those interactions. Sure. Well, um, you know, when I met Warhol in 85, 86, I was a little fuzzy myself about the time, but I believe it was late 85, early 86. It was um, during a time when I was taking forward some exhibitions from the museum's collection, and Dia had this incredible retrospective collection of Warhol's work. And so really that sort of was the framework, if you will, or the context for it all. And, you know, at first he was not very forthcoming. Um, There was an exhibition of the disaster paintings that I'd organized, and he was not really that involved. But then I had this idea to do something that really examined his pre-silkscreen work, the work he had made from 60 to 62, And when I reached out to him, he was very intrigued by the idea, quite interested in it. And it, you know, was at a time when he himself was revisiting hand painting in his collaborations with Basquiat and uh, Keith Haring. I found him a very open, shy, interested artist. Uh, And of course, when you're a young curator, sort of overwhelmed by the mythic status of someone such as Warhol. So I was... um, you know, in my on my own, for me, I was a bit taken aback about how to approach him. But then the conversations became really quite straightforward and very. Um, he was very forthcoming with information. I asked him a lot about the period of time he had worked in the fifties, in particular. I was very interested in that. And then, you know, how it was that he came to make these decisions between the more gestural abstraction and the move toward, you know, something that really appeared printed. The last Warhol retrospective organized by an American museum was at the Museum of Modern Art in 1989, just two years after his death. Uh, That's almost three decades ago. What new perspectives have you gained since then? Sure. I mean, it's, it's sort of amazing to imagine that, you know, it's been that long since a U.S. institution took on uh, a major retrospective of Warhol. I think in many ways that, you know, there's an entirely new generation, many of whom were not even a, <laughs> not born in 1989. So, you know, I think that uh, there's a generation that's been grappling with both rethinking painting, what painting can be, engagements with abstraction, but also, I think, a, uh, a fluidity or a comfort zone with looking and working with new technologies, media-driven things, um, digital technologies. So that's something that's really struck me immensely in all these years later, is to see a new generation for whom Warhol makes total sense. And it made me see 
I really felt that Warhol was very ahead of his times and that there, the perception of his work in the 60s, of course, you know, was for the most part, he had his detractors and still does, but for the most part, it was an incredibly radical move to make a silkscreen, uh, to use silkscreen to make a painting. But, you know, in the 70s and 80s, Warhol's work didn't, wasn't quite as popular. And I think that, you know, his use of technology, photography, um, ideas about image making, and of course, in an age of Instagram and so many other social media platforms, you know, Warhol's famous statement, you know, everyone will be famous for 15 minutes, which is probably now 15 seconds, um, rings incredibly true. So on some level, I'm particularly interested in a generation of artists that um, came a couple of decades, several decades after Warhol, and a new audience um, of people who will be coming to Warhol's work. In many ways, uh, in many instances, I think, not necessarily for the first time, but to see this level of depth in the work will be, for many people, a, 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 I hope, an eye-opening experience. Does the show cast the 1960s as his biggest moment? No. It really, um, you know, felt very... It was very important to really look through at the trajectory of Warhol's work, to, to consider his career as a whole. And I think there's been so much uh, attention paid to the 60s, both you know, in the critic, particularly on a critical level, uh, and the later work suffered a bit. And it's, there are those people and critics and, uh, and enormous scholarship after Warhol died, of course. When he died in 87, and a lot of work also came out that you know, w- had not been shown in his lifetime, really changed perceptions, I think, about Warhol. Warhol's a gay man, especially the early work of the 50s, where you see an aspect of Warhol that you, isn't as evident in the later work. But I think that 70s and 80s period um, was misunderstood. It didn't really look, even though the technique had similarities with 60s, the subject matter was completely different. Uh, yes, Hammer and Sickle, uh, which, you know, he was inspired by graffiti going to Italy during the time of the Red Guard. But then here's an artist who makes skull paintings or paintings of shadows. Um, this subject matter is quite distinct from the more quote-unquote, iconic imagery of the 60s. So what I've tried to do, which I think you do in any artist case, is to really show how those ideas have evolved over time. And I would say if almost half, maybe slightly half the exhibition is also devoted to the work that he made post-1960s. Well, let's dive into his early career. In 1949, more than a decade before the Campbell soup cans or the Mao or the Maryland images we're also familiar with, Warhol started out as an illustrator in commercial advertising, and he became quite a successful one. How did that influence his later work? Well, one of the arguments of the exhibition is that that 50s period was foundational for Warhol because, to a large extent, he was already a talent and an extraordinary draftsman. Um, And I think that in coming to New York, he didn't set out to be a commercial artist. He came with his f- college friend, Philip Perlstein, and they were roommates together. And, you know, they were wanting to be artists, but they had to support themselves. Warhol very readily got a job at Glamour magazine because he, you know, had this great proficiency at drawing. Um, I, I think that throughout the 50s, what he was able to do was to also see very firsthand 
the mechanics of visual communication, how images are put together, how desire is created in a product, whether it's a shoe, um, you know, or a pharmaceutical. And so to be part of that and to see and work with art directors, you know, many extremely sophisticated and uh, really well-trained themselves, some in the Bauhaus, you know, he had a firsthand, a front row seat and an engagement with that process as what you, how you work with an art director, how the art director transmits their idea of how it needs to change. And also he had this, he was immersed in the technologies of the period, technologies of the period such as photostat machines, opaque projectors, all the things that you use in to create these, you know, images that are fundamentally their final um, you know, the final their final uh, uh, location is in print. So he's working in a world in which print and particularly increasingly more photography is the language of popular culture. You write that early in his career, he seems to have run into censorship when he tried to show Mm -hmm. at art galleries. What were they objecting to? Well, you know, it was many of his early paintings um, were the subject matter, you know, would, was mostly figurative, although that he would use different patterns to obscure the image or he would mimic the brush strokes of, you know, some, I argue, one, some brush strokes looks like Ed Reinhardt uh, or an Adolf Gottlieb. Um, he, there's a particular incident that led me to that conclusion, and it's really one that was recounted to me by Philip Perlstein. Warhol had made a series of paintings in around the late 50s that he asked Perlstein to take to the Tanninger Gallery, which was a cooperative gallery where many of the Abex painters were involved. The subject was of two boys kissing. And, of course, they took, he dutifully took it to the gallery, and they laughed. <laughs> so it wasn't, I don't know if censorship's the right word, but it certainly was not at all in sync with the kind of subject matter at that time. Um, that's not to say there weren't artists such as Larry Rivers in particular, who Warhol credits as an influence, who were playing with that kind of figurative subject matter. And also that had this, you know, kind of coded, campy, coy uh, aspect to it. But it, it was not what they were going to show at those galleries. Well, back then, the art world was dominated by macho abstract expressionists, wasn't it? Absolutely. I mean, you know, it's the women, the great women of that period from Grace Hardigan and, and, you know, and Joan Mitchell are, you know, got their due, but much later on in a lot of ways. So, yes, it was a very male, male defined, although a number of women who were working at that time. And, you know, you have early Johns and Rauschenberg working at that time. So, you know, Warhol's part of a group of artists who, um, for whom that subject matter would, would not have appealed or that bravura, you know, um, was just out of sync. And he's also younger. He's a younger generation. So um, it's, a, it's an extremely difficult time. And, uh, but he keeps, you know, he's persistent in making his work like any, any driven artist. Well, the show has examples of his early hand-painted work. There's the Coca-Cola bottle, for example, which he apparently painted in a drippy, abstract expressionist style. But he also painted it in a way that resembles a commercially printed image. Yeah, I mean, this is really seen as a kind of breakthrough moment for him because 
much of the work that he was making, and this, you know, and many of the other artists, by the way, Roy Lichtenstein, uh, James Rosenquist, there were many artists who were still in that late fifties period, you know, were making, were interested in subject matter, but still feeling that they had to, in some way, tip their hat to abstract expressionism. So, Warhol made two versions of the painting, and one was a giant Coke bottle that had drips on it, and he invited. It's a very famous story. He invited. Four friends, Irving Blum, Ivan Karp, Emil D'Antonio, and Henry Godsaller, to look at the painting. And he wanted to see what they thought about leaving behind the drips, essentially. And, the, and then what about the other image, which really appeared printed and very mechanical. And there was very little trace of the artist's hand, and they all preferred the tighter version. But I find it fascinating that, you know, he, he nonetheless needed that... You know, I've often said now that Warhol's way of asking everyone's opinion would probably be called maybe a degree of crowdsourcing today. But he was very smart to get, you know, these are four extraordinary people that he's asking who are very knowledgeable and very much tapped into what was going on in contemporary art at the time. So, you know, he wanted their opinion. And thank, thankfully, <laughs> you know, one often conjectures what might have happened if they'd said we prefer the drippy version maybe we're all still would have gone forward with the other well then in 62 you see him shifting to a mechanical silkscreen technique was that a kind of breakthrough well i think there's an evolution and that's why i think the 50s is so important because he's already very much engaged with using techniques of reproduction to construct his images. He goes from, you know, he used carved uh, gum erasers, then he moves to stencils, and so eventually, and there's a famous, uh, it's always often described with Warhol's very earliest technique was this blotted line, where he would blot on one side, he would draw on one side of the piece of paper uh, in ink, blot it with the other, analogous to a monotype, and it would create this kind of quirky line that looked very much like Ben Sean, who was very popular amongst commercial, amongst art directors at the time. But it also allowed him to make copies of it and even had a couple of assistants as early as the early 50s. So in some ways, the move to the silk screen is seems inevitable. What differentiates it from that earlier time was the the insertion or the use of the photograph, because now you're moving from a something he draws himself, and there are some silk screens that were are based on drawings, but to use the silk screen, photo, the photo silk screen, it, to make painting is this really when form and content come together. So he's using the very technique through the, which these images are disseminated in the world to make the painting, and that's the radical shift. That's the paradigm. Well, you also have the paintings he made by borrowing from journalistic photography. He depicts accidents like car crashes, Mm -hmm. for example, in his Death and Disaster series. And then you have the electric chairs and the race riots and the Jacqueline Kennedy in mourning. What was the fascination with all that? Was he obsessed with death? Well, you know, I I think there's often, I mean, I think we're all obsessed with it in one way or another. So, But so is journalism. I mean, you know, the spectacle of violence and, you know, that's a moment of Look magazine, Life magazine. So it's a very different era than we live in today where you have multiple sources, multiple uh, uh, places to go for news. But, you know, I think there is that 
awareness of, you know, when we see accidents and I, you know, I, I'll admit to it, you know, you're on the road, you see the accident, you're compelled to look. So I do think that he was tapping into something that had to do with, you know, this compulsion that we have to look, uh, almost the, the kind of disbelief to also see something so horrific. Um, at the time, he talks about, because he was going to do a show in Paris, and he says, I think I'll call it Death in America. So there's a lot of different, you know, th- this is where, you know, the literature and Warhol's own statements and other people's uh, recounting of the moment can leave you a little bit, you know, um, your head spinning. But he does say something about in around December that, you know, this is a time when people will be on the road. And it is true that um, just prior to any holiday, we do get this something from the radio or TV, and we're anticipating, you know, a number of of accidents over the holiday period. So I think that, you know, he picked up on that. And I think there's something more there. And that's why I think that's such an extraordinary series, because there is something, you know, you're going from the celebrities of Marilyn Monroe and Elvis Presley and Troy Donahue and Natalie Wood, and now you move into people who are anonymous. And their their celebrity, if one wants to call it that, comes about, you know, through a tragic accident. Or in the case of, uh, the, you know, the, the mustard race riot, as he called it, you know, the civil rights protests in Birmingham. So, you know, it's, it's a vulnerability of, one, of also when people are threatened in that way. And there's one in particular called Suicide Fallen Body that depicts the um, tragic death of a woman who jumps off the Empire State Building. And she is nestled in the top of a car that she falls into and doesn't look dead. And it's, it's probably the most, I believe, one of the most haunting because it's, it's a very vulnerable, something about the framing uh, of the image, all, of course, taken by photojournalists. These were newswire photographs. Some of them were never printed because they were too grotesque. Others made it into newspaper. And the one I just described of the suicide was uh, printed twice in Life magazine. So I think they speak to an America also that is one where violence is a huge part of our history, um, where yeah, I have my own interpretation. You know, are, are we in some ways punished for consuming? There's one tuna fish disaster of two women who uh, both are tragically uh, die as a result of poisoned tuna fish. So it's a, it's a very, it's maybe the flip side of, you know, a certain kind of post-war optimism. Uh, and they, I believe they remain some of his most searing paintings. And, of course, the electric chair, um, which is just... Uh, you know, a startling image uh, to see. And of course, Warhol makes the one in the show is a lavender disaster painting. So in a sense, the absurdity, the irony and, and the horrific nature and maybe even our disregard or our, you know, the way in which you can look at an image and is it, what is it really about? And when you see this lone electric chair from Sing Sing Prison and the recognition that this is a means of capital punishment, and then it's made beautiful by lavender, it, it really sets up inevitable, you know, incredible contradiction in what you're looking at. So do you see these works as having a political thrust? I do. I mean, I think that that is a subtext in many of Warhol's works, not all. Some would dispute that. There's a lot of debate, especially in the critical community, about was Warhol political in what he was doing? Um, You could read just about any work of art in a political way. 
I think that they are. I think that that, but there. I think that's evident even in his pictures of soup cans. You know, I think that there's a a certain kind of um, confirmation of obsessions, desires, and at the same time, it's putting it in our face. So there's a there's a duality, and I think that Warhol. I've always felt he picked up on what I've seen as the twin contradictions of, a, of the American psyche, which is the desire for innovation, but also for conformity. I understand that the Whitney has a special connection to Warhol's films, which he started making in 63, right? Mm. Yes. Um, um, from 63 to 68, he made something like 650 films. It's, it's, it's mind-boggling, actually. And so a number of years ago, John Hanhard, who was then the curator of film and video at the Whitney, um, started to had conversations with Warhol about his films and preserving his films, and that really gave birth to the War to the Whitney's Catalog Resonate project. Um, and my um, late colleague Callie Angel, who was the author of the first Catalog Resonate of the films, which just focused on the screen test, worked with the Museum of Modern Art, who houses the actual films and the Warhol Museum uh, when it when it came into existence to really begin the process of looking not only the films you know that were shown but in numbers and numbers of reels of material that had never been seen and they have dutifully gone through the bulk of it and looked at it and noted the language in it who was in it um, and this is an incredible piece of scholarship because unlike looking at a painting which you know one devotes a certain degree of time, but, you know, with time-based media, one could only imagine. Well, given the personalities we meet in the films, do you see the films as a kind of portraiture? I do. I think that, that you know, if you think of the screen tests alone, um, you know, they are portraits. But they're portraits that allow for something else because they're filmed and because of the element of time. Warhol's interest in, port- interest in portrait of, portraiture, of course, is, is evident through the 50s where he has he's sketching a lot of men, he's sketching other people, he's a great social observer. And so the films, of course, allow for both a much more psychological penetration of the subject uh, by having them sit very still in, in front of a, a stationary camera, but also to pursue, you know, many ideas about um, how far you could push a film, how far you could push the medium itself, you know, whether with Warhol, he, running them at a faster speed, allowing some things, the strobe cut, different things that when the film can't, when you run out of tape, is evident that most people edit out. And he's part of that, you know, avant-garde film community, of Jonas Mikas and uh, Stan Vanderbeek. I mean, a lot of other filmmakers who were experimenting in this way. I think it's the, 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 just the sheer number of films that Warhol made that is, you know, really mind-boggling and just, again, evidence of his voracious appetite uh, as a visual artist uh, to play out ideas. In the 70s, then, we see him doing commission portraits uh, for Jet Set Society. You have socialites and movie people and industrialists. Did Warhol need those commissions financially, or was this partly a way of staying in the limelight? Probably a bit of both, but I think he... 
I think he, you know, in a sense, he sort of was playing with the very convention of how that kind of portraiture has existed, whether, you know, it was in the era of Velasquez and, you know, the, an artist is commissioned to do a royal portrait or, you know, up to John Singer Sardigan or Robert Henry. You know, those artists were equally working in a similar way. And oftentimes they were sought out by celebrities, social, well, socialites. Well, I don't know, celebrity is a, is a more 20th century term, but, you know, certainly wealthy individuals, socialites, philanthropists. So I think that for Warhol, you know, one has to remember that a lot of the work that he made in the 70s and the 80s was not commercially successful. So he was supporting the enterprise there. Uh, through those portrait commissions. And they start out, even in the 60s, there's an Ethel Skull portrait that's in the exhibition. There's an incredible portrait of an um, insurance executive in the Midwest that'll be in the show. And he's interested in portraiture throughout. The idea then of the commission portrait really just takes over. And, you know, people, I think it's like with any, you know, any well-known artist to have your portrait painted by a certain well-known figure is it conveys its own sort of status symbol and they range because some of them are more endearing there's a great portrait of his mother julia of his of his early dealers iliana sonabend um artists that he uh traded work for and then you know right up through dolly parton and uh the shah of iran and his wife and her sister and i do think there's a qualitative difference between the portraits where he uh, my argument is he you can see a bit of a difference between the portraits where he knew someone where there was an actual connection and those where he's just brilliant at having figured out a system that allowed him to make them very quickly um, and get paid for them and sometimes the people didn't want them they probably regretted that years later that grid of portraits on the um, lobby walls it has kind of an instagram effect doesn't it well, I think it's an early Facebook, <laughs> you know, because if you think about it, this desire that, you know, we have to feel recognized, to feel liked, um, is very much a part of our culture. And uh, I've seen this as a, as, a, as a somewhat of a Facebook of its era. Obviously, it's not comprehensive, but one of my uh, colleagues, um, Mark Loakana, who's done a lot of work mapping the portraits and really who, how they came about, who, you know, who was the contact. Sometimes it was Warhol, sometimes it was a dealer, sometimes it was a friend. You know, you see this incredible network of how uh, these individuals are even linked back to Warhol. So in some way, Warhol's always at the center of it all. Um, but it is in, in many ways. It's, it's a Facebook. It's, a, it's about being liked. It's about how you can have agency to make yourself into a star. I, you, now we can do that in a way that I don't think it would, would have been un, unimaginable, actually was not possible in Warhol's era. I mean, now you can create your own, you know, you can become famous for just putting your images on fin- on Instagram. It's, 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 it's a, there's a good and a bad of, of that desire uh, to feel that the only way that you exist is to be uh, liked in the concept of that like or dislike, or that you, you know, absolutely desire or need to record every aspect of your life. And uh, Warhol was doing that, and he prefigures, in a sense, what has happened in our culture. In the 1980s, then, you see some art historical appropriations, don't you? I mean, like the Last Supper paintings. Yes, he just goes through a period of time where he, he looks at de Chirico, 
Edvard Munch, The Scream. He goes through sort of the Renaissance. Uh, he's interested in Renaissance paintings. I think one of the most um, complex topics he takes on is Leonardo's Last Supper. And he was doing them in his studio, and his one of his old-time dealers, Alexander Iolis, came, came to the studio, saw them, and had this idea that Warhol would present these paintings very near to the Leonardo's original. And we have an extraordinary painting in the show that combines camouflage with the Last Supper image. And, you know, the, the, to, I think it's a, it's a very alluring, very mysterious painting. It uh, functions on many, many different levels. Of course, you know, it became known after his death that he was a Catholic and very devout Catholic. Um, but to quote also a Leonardo painting, which he'd already done with his Mona Lisa painting in 1963, you know, this is where Warhol looks at also a painting that itself entered into popular culture. So, you know, he works from really cheap maquettes or, you know, little plaster images of the Last Supper or there, there's some prints that he uses. So this is a work of art like the Mona Lisa um, that, you know, crossed over, let's say, from the walls of the Louvre and into the just the, the world of pop culture, commercial culture. And so his choices, I think that's the most successful of them. He did do other works of art by other artists, but I, I think this is the one that where he's able to do something with the image. He connects with it. And the ones we have, the one we have also conflates camouflage with it as well. With The Last Supper. Yes, um, it came as a surprise to me to read that he was actually an observant Catholic. Did he go to Mass? Apparently, and apparently he was, you know, served soup, went to a soup kitchen. Um, of course, he grows up in a Byzantine Catholic family in Pittsburgh, and so that is his background. But, it, you know, it was not something I was aware of and not something I focused on. But again, I think this is information that what became if not more available, people focused on it more posthumously. So, you know, his memorial service, which I did go to, was at St. Patrick's Cathedral, and, you know, it was a star-studded group there, Uh, and the statement was made by John Richardson in his eulogy, you know, talking about Warhol and the church that he would go and serve soup at, and, you know, you sort of, really? is I mean, those close to him would know this. I wasn't an intimate, but Um, But I think it just reveals also, you know, him as a human being. And it's so difficult because Warhol created this myth around himself that in many ways, I think, obscured his work as an artist and also his, you know, love of the commercial, love of money. Many of these things, I think, prevented people from in some ways seeing the real talent in his work. Um, and, you know, we, we have difficulty in some ways. We expect artists to have, to live a certain kind of life or to be a certain kind of way. I think that's so much less the case in the last few decades. But his, I think the Catholicism to me is also very important in terms of his understanding of the icon. So, you know, growing up in a religion where icons, where gold is used in such way, such a way, you know, he, he was very aware of the of how of the power of the image you know both in terms of confirming belief but also almost as a kind of tool of propaganda if you will so the the idea of believing in what you're seeing what is it that you believe when you see when you look at an image and particularly if it's a something that exists in the world 
and it's a brand. You know, all of those things play into it. And I, I really believe fundamentally that what Warhol's whole project comes to, and the shadows in particularly make clear, is the illusion that we're looking at something that is an illusion, and it, our mind wants to believe it's the real thing, whether it's the Coke bottle or, you know, even the Leonardo painting. You know, at the time, the Leonardo's um, Last Supper, there was tremendous debate about um, restoring it, because what we're looking at, of course, is not as it had appeared when da Vinci made it. It was done on a fresco. It had peeled from the wall. There were debates, should it be left as it is? And Warhol even says he preferred it in, his de- in its deteriorated state. So this whole idea of what a work of art is, but also beyond, because I think because he has, he moves over, he's able to somehow bring together the world of popular culture and the world of art history and the world of art that somehow it's not just that we're looking at a, a painting, but we're looking at a painting about something, an object, a brand that's trying to get us to believe something, to buy it. So it's, it's a very complicated enterprise within it. Now, Warhol obviously longed to be a legend, didn't he? Um, time after time, he reproduced his own image and self-portraits, but there's still something a little mysterious about him, a kind of self-concealment. Um, through your work on the show, have you do you feel that you've gotten to understand and know him? Well, I could never say that I know him in that sense, but I think that you know you see as an individual i I think that many there was a sort of hidden part to how he lived his life. Clearly, we're just talking about his Catholicism, you know, and other things that were not commonly known. so there was a dis- there's a distance, you know, whether it was being an insider and an outsider, because I think he was that to a certain extent. Um, you know, it's like a way you're on the street and off the street. Um, but I also think that, you know, there was an air of mystery that he purposely created around himself. You know, he begins using his own self-portraits around 64 and um, makes himself subject. But, of course, the self-portrait is not a new idea in the history of art. Um, but eventually also he does become a brand. And in the 80s, he appears in TV commercials. He appears in print commercials for various projects and products, mostly outside of the U.S. He does one for Japanese, a commercial for Japanese television. Um, so it's the level of product endorsement in the days, the old days where, you know, Joan Crawford sold Pepsi-Cola. So that's not a new thing. Um, we still have, you know, um, Matthew McConaughey, I think, selling cars. And so it's not a kind of, you know, new idea. But, you know, the, the issue of, you know, the late self-portraits that he makes, which, of course, with the fright wig, where, you know, there's a mysterious figure there. And I think most really good artists often say little about themselves. So I, I think for all that Warhol said in the diaries and all of, you know, and he's out there more than any other artist I can imagine to some extent, um, you know, Oscar Wilde certainly was someone who put out a lot of information about himself. So he's a little bit in that, you know, in that vein. But you could never know everything. And I think that's the same thing with his works of art, that when it comes down to it, they remain mysterious, as any great work of art, uh, I think, does. I've always believed that the test of a great work of art is that no matter how how many times you go back to it, you can't completely figure it out. And Mm -hmm. I think that's the case with Warhol. 
Warhol apparently met Donald Trump, didn't he? <laughs> Several times, and he writes about Trump and Trump's first wife, Ivana, in his diaries. I also see that Trump has quoted Warhol in a couple of his books. How do you think your show connects with this Trumpian moment we're in? Well, it absolutely, you know, Warhol did have exchanges with Donald Trump. Of course, they were both on the scene in New York, and um, Trump had asked him to make a painting of one of his buildings. I think it was of Trump Tower. And Warhol did it, and then Trump rejected it because he said that the color combo didn't, he didn't like the color combo. And I think Warhol quotes in his diaries that, you know, he thought Donald Trump was really cheap. So, (laughs) you know, I think it's a great question because I do think that because Warhol's work is so identified with the United States and because the subject matter is absolutely drawn from, for the most part, the U.S., that it's an interesting moment to look at what is being projected in that work and that optimism of the 60s and the post-war era and a very different kind of America in America on the, on the you know, as the savior of the world, uh, you know, the Marshall Plan. I mean, we were in a very different place then than we are now. So I think it's very interesting to look at that and to compare these two times when we're in an extremely different different situation, uh, both domestically and globally. You know, I think the other thing is to, you know, think about um, the way Warhol creates these fictions through his films of the 60s and the, you know, the inevitable rise culturally, and this is not something I would say was something Warhol can be, you know, said he did, that he, that he created, but, you know, we live in an age of celebrity culture and of reality TV. And so it's quite interesting to think of that, you know, cinema verite that started to happen in a lot of Warhol's films where you see it as you see it. There's no script it's an acting out. Um, and then there was that famous program, The Loud Family, I think in 1970, where they track the family, a California family with cameras in the home and, you know, all manner of things, divorces, a son coming out gay, they all come out before camera and on camera. And, you know, it's not, you know, to go from that to our reality TV obsessed culture, which has been the case now for at least 10 years or so, um, is a, is a, you know, it's a very frightening idea because it starts to raise this question of what is true? What are we looking at? What can be manufactured? And so, you know, I, I think it's a very interesting moment to look at Warhol in particular because, you know, when you plan an exhibition, you never know what the world is going to be. And I think many of us didn't expect we would be where we are now. So I'm very interested to see. There may be some who see Warhol as the cause uh, of it all. I've had people who've said that to me. I, I don't think any one artist could claim such a power in the world. But I think that he, like most artists, anticipates something and has that antennae. And I do think that there's something within Warhol's work which has a dark side uh, and, and also, uh, you know, says something about aspects of the United States, our love of capitalism, our love of consumerism, uh, you know, if all we are as a society of consumers, we're in a very sad place. 
So, and you could be consuming all kinds of things. It doesn't have to be products. It can also be, you know, um, information that's fed to us. So it's, it's a very, you know, potent time, I think, to raise many of these issues. And I, I hope that some of this, you know, comes into the conversation uh, in terms of the exhibition. Uh, you, you know, you want a work of, you, I believe the work remains um, extremely relevant. And now we'll test out what that relevance really means. Thank you for joining us, Donna. My pleasure. Thank you. Now, in 1986, the year before Warhol died, he had an exhibition at the Anthony Doffey Gallery in London. A 20-year-old student at the Courtauld Institute of Art in London met him at the Private View and was later invited by Warhol to New York to visit the factory. That student was Jeremy Deller, the British artist who's continued to reflect some of the key elements of Warhol's work in his own practice. Indeed, in 2014, Deller explored the connections between Warhol and another of his heroes, William Morris, in an exhibition at Modern Art Oxford. Della came to our studio at Soho Radio in London in November last year to talk to me about meeting Warhol and about his enduring significance. Jeremy, if we could begin with your first experiences of Andy Warhol. Were you a sort of teenager looking at his work somewhere? It would have definitely been probably through the Marilyn, through maybe seeing that at Tate, yeah. as it was then, and uh, just being aware of him through the Velvet Underground, through photographs of him, just through him being a, quite a dominant character, really, and uh, hearing stories about him and being intrigued by how he dressed. I was a bit of a goth, so as a sort of 16-year-old, so he had a quite a goth look, actually. I mean, the hair wasn't black, obviously, but just the whole look and wearing black. But he, you know, he did wear black, but he was just a very appealing character. Were you sort of... Because really, I certainly, my first experiences of Warhol were sort of reading about him by musical artists talking about him in music magazines and stuff like that did you did you were you sort of art conscious as a young man i was art conscious in that respect yes and so i did i knew about him i think it's it's probably really photographs of him which were more uh intriguing him with all these funny looking people and doing stuff and looking very blank and with the wig and in these situations and so on. So I think he's very appealing. You know, the sort of dressing up aspect of him was very appealing. And also the, his identity, creating this identity for himself. If you're an adolescent, you kind of, you're quite interested in that aspect of people when they do that. And the fact that he, he looked like he was having a really good time, even though you never could, he didn't really smile that much, but it just looked like he was misbehaving in public when he was out. Everything he did was a sort of form of rebellion, Really, and his whole life was a was essentially a rebellion against normality, and I think that that I think is something that we have to really. That's a really important part of him, really. And so, when you were um, studying art history at the Courtauld, were you already very contemporary art focused at that stage, or no, I wasn't. I mean, I studied, art history at the Courtauld was not contemporary art. It was absolutely, it was the absolute opposite. So it was an interest I had anyway. Right. So I was aware of contemporary art. And I was really aware of the characters like Gilbert and George and Warhol and, you know, these big people, men mainly, and they were intriguing characters. And in a way, Gilbert and George took a lot from Warhol, I would argue, in terms of their personas. They're almost not exactly robotic demeanor, but they're, they're, they're sort of blank demeanors and just like watching and, and so on and, and also just the work looked Warholian I would argue you know with the colors and, and the techniques 
So, yes, I was interested in artists who are characters as well. And so you went to the Anthony Doffet exhibition in 1986 and actually met Warhol there. Well, he, si- he was doing sign. He was signing things and everyone rushed to the table and got things signed. And I did. I got a few things signed. And then afterwards, one of his entourage said, oh, come, come, come to the hotel on Thursday night. This was on a Tuesday. And just hang out. I couldn't quite. I couldn't believe it. Really, I thought, well, I will do that. Actually, I'm not. I'm, I'm just going to go and do that. I took a friend with me, and we'd had this sort of funny couple of hours with Warhol and his entourage. These people just sitting around. And Can you sort of set the scene? So it's in the Ritz, right? It's in the Ritz. It's. Uh, we dressed up a little bit. Me and my mate Chris, in suits and sort of funny hats and whatnot. We took a bag of sort of props with us, like hats and sort of wigs and all sorts of things. We didn't know what to expect, really. I think we were both a bit nervous. And we went to the suite at the Ritz he had and we walked in and there were just a bunch of sort of middle-aged men sitting around watching Benny Hill with the sound turned down and uh, a Roxy Music Greatest Hits tape playing in a ghetto blaster, which, if you think about it, is pretty good sort of installation in its own own right. And there he was with these men who looked a bit bored, really. strange. And they were just sitting around waiting for something to happen. And, and we were what was with the entertainment, basically. And we went there and were chatting, had a picture taken, sort of put on funny, these funny hats and just mucked about. We literally just mucked about. And then... Um, There's a funny photo, actually, of you with Warhol and you've got a New York Yankees baseball cap. That's actually in New York. Oh, right, okay. There's another one. There's some other other photographs of us all sort of like piles of blokes just sort of like arms around each other, like wearing funny clothes and that. It was quite innocent, really, and uh, thankfully. And so we just... um, Then he said, oh, come out to the factory. I'm doing a TV show. Just come out and whatever. Again, I just thought, well, I'm not going to turn this one down. I will regret this, not doing this. We got Whatever happens, I'm going to regret not doing it. So we went out that summer and spent two weeks hanging around the factory working on this MTV show he was doing, being filmed for it and just being, just really hanging around, going out a lot. So we saw him there. And he would just wander around the factory. That's how it seemed. I mean, he was actually working very hard, I think, but he was just, he was just wandering about in these paint-spattered black jeans and a black polo neck, chatting to people and whatnot. Were you conscious of the sort of myth of the factory or the, or the stories about the factory at that stage? Well, I mean, yeah. you think about it, the factory as an idea and with all those people in it, it's just how, as a teenager, you want to live your life, basically, in this big room with all these funny people and rock and roll and sort of glamorous women and whatnot. And it just seemed like that's how you want life to be. It just looked amazing. And so the factory wasn't like that in 1986, but it's still super exciting to be there. Can you describe sort of some of the spaces? Because it was it was a it was a, it, by that stage there were sort of multiple rooms. Is well, that right? there was a big it was a big house, a big office building, basically a nice old building, but it was it was an office building about four floors. There's a roof, big roof. You'd walk through the factory and you'd get you'd get into another building which was interview. So there was that as well, which is the magazine that we yes. produce. So you know he had his magazine there. He had a film production. He had his office. He had his office, uh, which was full of boxes and books and magazines. Which there wasn't even a chair in it. It was just full. You know, he had nowhere. He didn't. You know, his office was unusable, basically. But it was. It was a sort of office of a, a relaxed office environment. I would say, if that makes sense. Some stuffed animals around. Bridget Berlin was on the desk. But you know, you were there. You'd. You were in that place. It was very exciting. 
did, did that mark the moment when you made that shift from you're studying art history and and you make that shift into thinking there's a possibility of being an artist well possibility is a good word because it's just showed what was possible what what was actually possible in the world as an artist you basically did whatever you wanted and he did whatever he wanted that's how it, it seemed like he had complete freedom it wasn't actually the case when you read the diaries and find out about what was going on at that time he's quite frustrated but it just looked like he could do whatever he wanted and uh, yes it just made the world of baroque altarpieces much i love them just not particularly they couldn't really compete with that with with contemporary life and so i i did go back to college and i finished my degree not that i knew what to do with that experience of being there really i didn't really know what it took some time to process in a way but i just knew i'd been ruined by it uh, in terms of an art, art history my life in art history had just been destroyed by going to see him and one of the striking connections i think between your work and, and andy warhol's life and work is is this connection with with music and particularly rock and pop music mm. obviously there's warhol's famous covers for the velvet underground yes and rolling stone sticky fingers etc etc yes yes but also just that sort of um spiritual connection between art and music and it seems to me that's right at the heart of what you do yes yes it is uh that existed before though really you know the, the music my connection to music and pop music was from the age of about four or five so that was already there. But then seeing an artist that was seemed to be part of that as well and was interested in it was you know, quite influential. So um, I was always happy to know that. And um, But yes, the music and art thing for me was always huge, huge and still is. I mean, maybe a bit less so now. So I've sort of lost touch with popular music. But I still have opinions. <laughs> so, but, uh, but yes, that was... You know, that, not having any boundaries, I think, was the interesting thing with him. You know, film, magazine, music, f- art, even performance in a way. You know, his life was a performance. So that was, for me, that's, he was a great influence in that respect. And I suppose also the fact that he sort of corralled people together and into interesting situations. And, you know, you think about the films, mm. very many of them are Warhol setting up a situation and then seeing what happens. And, and you see that to a certain degree in your work as well yes a little bit i mean they're very different situations yeah (laughs) but he is yes he was a a voyeur he clearly was a voyeur of people he wasn't really he didn't really take part in things and i have a little bit of that about me as well i'm not very good at taking part in things but i just i do like getting other people to take part in them it's a bit of a contradiction in a way but yes i definitely there is definitely a, a, a connection in that respect um, Warhol obviously was an artist who uh, had a very object-based practice as well as the sort of more ephemeral or performative mm. and film-based works and stuff like that. Um, you're, I don't think of you as somebody who produces objects so much. I don't. Um, so that's a huge difference. I mean, his, his, in a way, his work was quite... A lot of it was quite traditional. It was paintings, wasn't it? And, uh, and uh, I think... No, we... We don't have that much in common, really. In, 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 well, I mean, I wouldn't want to compare myself anyway, but I, I just think that, yes. I mean, in a way, he's responsible for a lot of problems in the art world as well. <laughs> I think, you know, this concentration on money and this love of money and the way people work and talk about arts. I mean, he, he was one of the first people to, to talk in those terms about art. And, um, 
and the way his prices have just been inflated as well. I mean, that's nothing. That's not his problem. But and the idea that an artist wants to be famous and all that kind of stuff—that's that's unleashed many demons, you know, in, in the art world. These second-rate artists who think they can be like him. But um, yes, he 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 did open a can of worms, and then has left us to sort of work out what to do with that can of worms. I'd argue. Yeah, I I agree with that. And I think one of the things about Warhol was that his his understanding of those mechanisms and the the sort of infrastructures of those sort of power structures, if you like, was much more sophisticated than he's often given credit for. Absolutely. I mean, he saw the whole of America from top to bottom. You know, he loved hanging out with rich people, but he sort of despised them as well. And uh, when you see, he doesn't have much good to say about them when you read the diaries. And he really thought that, he was. I think he was very aware of social issues, and famously, I still don't know if it's true or not. You know, he did do the soup kitchen thing on Friday evenings at yeah. the cathedral. I don't. I just don't know if that's true or not. But well, Donna DeSalvo, the curator of the Whitney, suggests that it is true. Yeah. Well, if, yeah. It, if that's the case, then he was going to the top and the bottom of America, so he was very aware of that, and he came from a very poor background. That's why I did. I did made an exhibition about William Morris and Warhol a few years ago, yeah. and they both of them, Morris too, you know, Morris had clients who were some of the richest people in the world but also he would travel around britain giving lectures and talks and and meeting people who were some of the poorest people in the country and they both were super aware of that and were kind of quite angry by it as well morris it sent morris insane and i think it probably did that with warhol as well he probably was quite angry by a lot of these wealthy people and just thought were not worthy of it of his riches it seemed to me that that show was a, was really trying to complicate Warhol as a as both an artist and a public figure in a way that you you've you've expressed just now what what's so contradictory about him in some ways mm-hmm. but 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 I think Warhol in a way as he's you know especially in a sort of social media driven world has become a kind of caricature of what Warhol actually was and, yes. and, and you deepened the mystery I suppose I think depth is the thing there was a lot more he was a very political artist you could argue i mean everyone just thinks oh he just liked money and that's what he was interested in and it was all surface and he was really superficial but actually he was he was really a deeply he was a very profound artist documenting the american empire um you know that this the, 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 the post-war empire that was america and he, he was he was their artist and if you think about what what was america like in the 60s and 70s you you look at andy warhol's work you don't read a book. You look at those images almost. So I think, you know, he was absolutely a chronicler. And he was a prophet as well, like Morris. They're both prophets for the future. They both looked into the future and saw what it was going to be like. Um, Warhol basically predicted the internet in, a, in some respects in terms of his interests and the way he was a voracious collector and um, wanting to be everywhere all the time, meet everyone, be documented meeting everyone, his kind of collecting habits, his his wanting to document his life, to record everything. Um, I still maintain that if he was alive during the internet, he would have been one of the major players within the internet because all his obsessions are the obsessions of the internet. Meeting people, uh, yeah, so social networks, and then buying and selling things, gossip, photographing yourself all those things he was doing this 20 30 years before the internet but he was the first internet artist really but what's weird now is because of the foundation you cannot photograph his work in exhibitions and his work doesn't really exist on the internet as, as you might think it would 
so which is a huge irony, which would send him nuts, I'm sure. not Because th- he wanted his work to be everywhere and available to everyone, like Morris. And so um, it, it would send him nuts thinking that his work was, was actually not very well represented on the internet. He just wouldn't be able to understand that because it was invented for him, basically. Yeah, exactly. I mean, another thing... I mean, it's interesting you talking about being a goth, but I think that there is an attractiveness for lots of people in the sort of darkness of Warhol. And it's sort of, and, and again, this is a side to Warhol that's underplayed to a certain degree. Even the flower paintings, which were, I thought you did a really interesting thing in that last room of your uh, show with uh, uh, Love Is Enough with, with with William Morris and Warhol together, was that you brought the flower paint, flower paintings and flower wallpapers together. Mm. But even the flower paintings by Warhol, you know, Ronnie Coutrone says, says they're as much about life and death as Marilyn is, and as and the and the death and disaster series are. Well, they're sort of transient, aren't they? These yeah. little, little peonies or whatever they were. And then he got into camouflage as well after that, which of course is about warfare. Um, but yes, I think everything for him. I think he was very aware of his own mortality, and um, yes, a, the darkness is what's appealing about him, really, isn't it? I think you need Marilyn. That's a, someone who just recently died. And then yeah. he started making the Liz portraits because she was very sick. And he probably thought, well, she's going to die. So I'll do some Liz portraits. I mean, it's quite <laughs> cynical in a way. And then the Kennedys' uh, work, of a portfolio made about the Kennedys and so on. And really, the, the works now that have the greatest monetary value are the death and disasters and the car crashes and uh, race riots. And so that's what we really remember him for, in the 60s at least. And um, no one made a more direct comment about that situation than he did really by the race riot pictures um so i think the darkness with him was always clearly always there and his awkwardness and so on but i that that appeals to me and of course appeals to teenagers as well like i said i think you get into him very early and he sort of stays with you jeremy thanks so much for talking to me thank you Andy Warhol from A to B and back again is at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art until the 2nd of September and then travels to the Art Institute of Chicago where it opens on the 20th of October. The excellent and exceedingly beautiful catalogue that accompanies the show published by the Whitney and Yale University Press is $70. You can keep up to date on all the latest art world news at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iOS which you can find at the App Store. On the website, you'll find a range of subscriptions so that you can read our content seamlessly across multiple platforms. Meanwhile, please subscribe to our free daily newsletter for all the latest stories. Go to theartnewspaper.com and click the newsletter link at the top right of the page. Do subscribe to this podcast wherever you normally listen to them and please leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter at Tan Audio. We're also on Instagram and Facebook. The podcast is produced by Judy Mahalska, Amy Dawson and David Clack and David does the editing. We'll be back with another Top of the Pods next week. Bye for now. The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com now.